0: Let's, uh, let's come before the Lord in prayer before we begin our um, study here and message this morning. So if you'll kneel with me, let's uh, gather together here. Father in heaven, we thank you so much again for the Holy Sabbath day. We thank you for providing a beautiful day for us here. We're thankful that uh, we have a day each week that we can come together and and gain a taste of heaven that we can uh, separate and, and uh, leave our employment uh, for a day that we can leave our, our worries of uh, you know our weekly worries and, and uh, the things that uh, um, you know our responsibilities and those kinds of things aside that we can spend time with you and with each other uh, in worship. Uh, That We can gain a rest from the spiritual warfare and gain encouragement by gathering together, Lord. Uh, We thank you so much for that. We pray for uh, the Holy Spirit to help us uh, as we walk day by day, that we will be drawn closer to thee and be able to share uh, the truth that we know with those around us, that they may see Jesus alive in our hearts. And Lord, we pray that you'll forgive us our sins. Uh, We pray that uh, we will be washed clean by the blood of Jesus. and. uh, that we will be found worthy when He returns. We lift up those on our prayer list. Uh, We pray for um, our dear sister and friend Jerry, who has a family situation that you know well uh, of. It's a very serious matter. We pray that the truth come out and uh, that justice will be done. And Lord, that uh, souls uh, will be healed um, because of Your grace. Uh, Lord, we're talking about a specific uh, subject here today. It's a very important one. I pray that you give me the words to speak. and uh, May they be the truth and uh, be your words, uh, not opinion or tradition. We thank you so much for Jesus and his life and death for us, his ministry for us in heaven, and we, we want to hasten his return. So, Lord, give us grace to do that. Again, we thank you for the Sabbath day and pray that you continue to bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you know how to uh, turn the lapel mic on? <laughs> Maybe I can... Okay, testing one, two. Let's see if anyone in the room can hear me there. Testing one, two, one, two, one, two. Good. All right. We got that straightened out. We're going to have to have a furthering education uh, seminar here for our uh, audiovisual people. (laughs) <laughs> That's right. Uh, well it's good to see everyone we've come a long way in our studies uh, defining God's church uh, we learned in Genesis 3.15 in the early time of mankind about the battle between Christ and the Antichrist and how it will eventually end Genesis 3.15 you guys remember what that says we'll get to it in a moment you may want to turn there It gives mankind the truth, this scripture, as to the loving character trait of God and His remedy for the sin problem. It speaks of two lines of descendants that will remain on the earth until the great controversy comes to an end. And we've learned that in this great controversy between Christ and Satan, there are only two churches in all creation at this very moment. Though the word church has been used to mean Different things, like people, buildings, uh, denominations, organizations, etc. The Bible, though, defines only two current churches. First, you have God's church, and it's currently referred to as the church militant. And what that means is, it's made up of both faithful souls and unfaithful souls. You know, remember the, the tares, the foolish virgins, the Laodiceans. But it's not made up of open sinners. And open sinners are those who are openly sinning for all to see. i talking about sins in the heart. Of course, we know that sin begins in the mind, doesn't it? As Jesus told us. Then the second church is Satan's church, today known as, the Bible describes as, spiritual Babylon which is made up of both faithful souls and unfaithful souls, but it's also made up of open sinners. So you see the difference there. And we find this truth right in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis 3 and verse 15. And this is where man had sinned, had fallen, God comes looking for man. Remember he says in the cool of the day, he comes looking for man, and he finds that they have disobeyed him. And so... He speaks to the woman, he speaks to the man, and then he speaks to the serpent, remember? He's speaking to the serpent here, Genesis 3.15, and he says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. So we find right here in the very first book, right after sin, we find two identities, don't we? The serpent and the woman, right? That's what he's speaking about. Two descendants, the serpent's seed and the seed of the woman, but one conflict, one conflict that will end with the crushing of the serpent's head. That's what bruise means there. If you go to the original language, it means crush. And so it means his death. It means the death of the devil, the death of his church forever. We found in our study over these past several uh, months that the Bible gives ten primary characteristics of god 's church, his people, there are more characteristics, but these are the most prominent characteristics of the true church of God, and all others will build upon these or they actually they fall within uh, these attributes. I want to go through them here real quickly again you 're familiar with them first god 's church will have the nature of Christ, that means it 's going to be made up of born again believers. Though there are tares sown by the enemy within the organization, okay, but that's not the same as God's church. that's part of the organization. And we're going to talk about organization in the coming weeks, but it'll have the nature of Christ. And remember Jesus, when he became man, was a combination, wasn't he? He was divinity, and he was humanity combined. And when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes in, changes us, we become not God, but we become influenced by the Holy Spirit. We become influenced by God. We are a different person. We are humanity and divinity combined. Now, I'm not saying we become God. That was Satan's argument, Satan's uh, deception to Eve. You will be like God. That's not what the Bible says at all. But we will become as uh, we are said in inspiration, like a brother to Christ. Okay. We don't have his position, but we have that relationship. You understand what I'm saying? Born again believers. Uh, second thing, it will be a spiritual house with Christ as the head. He's the head of the church. Remember we found wherever Jesus is, there is his church. And there are indications as to where Jesus will be and where He will not be. Okay. Third thing, it'll be of the spiritual seed of Abraham, not of the fleshly seed of Ishmael. Okay. That again kind of relates and builds on uh, uh, the first characteristics: born again, spiritual seed of Abraham, not the fleshly seed of Ishmael, living by through a carnal heart, our natural heart. This means that we'll be covenant keeping and the Sabbath is a sign of the covenant that God has made with his people. The Fourth thing, uh, the church will be a light that leads the way to the head. Who's the head of the church? Jesus is, isn't he? He's the head of the church. Uh, A Fifth characteristic, it's going to have the gifts and it's going to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That includes the testimony of Jesus, which the Bible says is the spirit of prophecy. It's going to be a church of prophecy, and it's going to uh, have a prophet, and we found this in our studies. The six characteristics, it's going to stand upon the foundation of truth. That's one of the main characteristics of the church. It stands on the foundation of truth, and who is the truth? Jesus is the truth. If he's the head, then you know the church is going to stand on the foundation of truth as it stands on Jesus. Jesus but especially it's going to be standing on present truth. What do I mean by present truth? Is the message of the church today to warn the world of a great worldwide flood? No. Why not? That was Noah's message, wasn't it? That was Noah's present truth. But that's not ours. Ours is the three angels' messages that we find in Revelation 14. The Seventh characteristic is that the church is going to have the faith of Jesus. In other words, it's going to have righteousness by faith. It's going to be a righteous people who overcome sin through the merits of Christ, and they have faith in Christ, and they they can overcome sin through that, uh, through that faith. Uh, characteristic number eight: They're going to, because of the righteousness by faith, they're going to keep the law of God, all ten commandments. Uh, the ninth characteristic. They're going to be a vibrant, which means a healthy church, living in Christ, a true fellowship of believers. Okay? And we covered, remember, we covered the foolish virgins, the tares, the, the Laodiceans, and we know how that plays in. Uh, and the uh, tenth characteristic, they're going to have godly love and unity. They're going to have unity in doctrine, and uh, because of that unity, they will be organized for service. That's what the church is for, is to be organized for service. The organization itself is not the church. <laughs> okay, And I could spend the next several months, uh, which I'm not going to do, uh, speaking about why this church organization and that organ- organization uh, does not belong to God's church. They don't have these characteristics. But there really is no need to do that. Uh, if you know and understand the biblical characteristics, which is what we've laid out in the last several weeks. And, uh, and this is a principle. This is a principle that we, we as Christians need to learn about sharing the gospel. Um, let me share a couple things with you. From Pacific Union Recorder, October twenty third, 1902. The best way to expose the fallacy of error is to do what? Who can tell me? What's the best way to expose the fallacy of error? Present the evidences of the truth. This is the greatest rebuke that can be given to error. Dispel the cloud of darkness resting on minds by reflecting the bright light of the sun of righteousness. The devil will want to pull you into uh, arguments, see, and get you off of sharing the truth. He'll want to get you into debating Error. See? But the best way, as she says, to expose the fallacy of error is to present the evidences of the truth. Here's another one. Testimonies to Ministers, page 165. The best way to deal with error is to present the truth and leave wild ideas to die for want of notice. <laughs> Just don't go there. See? Contrasted with truth, the weakness of error is made apparent to every intelligent mind. That's a key, too. <laughs> Intelligent mind. The more the erroneous assertions of opposers and of those who rise up among us to deceive souls are repeated, the better the cause of error is served. The more publicity is given to the suggestions of Satan, the better pleased is his satanic majesty. So we've got to be careful when dealing with error. I mean, it's not that we're not to even mention error at times. It becomes necessary to. But the best way to deal with error is to present the truth. And stick with the truth. You know, swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Right? And then when people bring up error, you just don't even have to go there. You just present the truth. And I found that to work every time. There are many ministries out there that try to declare the truth by majoring on the errors of others. And you know some of them. Every one of us does. It's much better to share the truth and let it take care of the error. Wouldn't you agree with that? I wish that more of God's people would trust the truth enough to uh, share it with others and let it do its work upon the mind and heart to, to dispel the error that people have. What do we do when we find that Bi- the Bible description of who and what the church is conflicts with how we were raised? Or what we've been taught by pastors and ministers, church organizations, and, you know, or the family for generations. What do we do? We have a real decision to make when the truth of God's word conflicts with our perception of the truth, don't we? We have a decision to make. Now, for me, I want to follow the truth. What about you? Each one of us has to make that decision. If we're going to follow the truth or not. Are we going to follow Jesus? Bible says Jesus is the truth, the life, and the way. We want to follow the truth. We want to follow Jesus. we got to follow the truth, don't we? I'll tell you that things in this world are tightening up. We're seeing the birthing pains of the earth, and it'll get worse, beloved. It's going to get worse. For God has said it's going to get worse. <laughs> God's also said that he's going to lead his people to triumph in this great final conflict with the beast, with His image, with His number, with His mark. And I think that that's great news. Can you just imagine if the Bible told us that we were going to have this great conflict, but we're not told how it will end? That doesn't uh, encourage us to to hope. (laughs) But God has said that there will be victory. And just when it appears that His church will be destroyed, it is delivered. And I want to talk about His people today, His God's people victorious, His victorious church. I want to talk about that with you, the final victory for His people on earth. We read about it in Revelation chapter 15. Chapter 15, beginning with verse 1. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, Seven angels, having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. Let me ask you a question. Who are these plagues for? Does anybody know? Who receives the wrath of God? Does anybody know? Nobody knows? Who receives the plagues? Who receives the wrath of God? Isn't it the beast and all those who have the mark of the beast? Now, not what Revelation says? Every person who receives the mark of the beast will partake of the plagues. So that, that's... Who is who they are for. Verse 2, And I saw as it were a sea of glass, mingled with fire. And them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass. So there's a group of people, and those people are the ones who've gotten the victory over the beast and his image and his mark and his name, and they're standing on the sea of glass. This is what John is seeing and vision. And he says those people have the harps of god that's rather interesting isn't it and they sing the song of moses the servant of god and the song of the lamb now do you are you familiar with the song of moses at all well i encourage you to go back to uh, exodus and when they had left egypt they found them israel found themselves at the sea remember And here comes Pharaoh's army, and then what happens? What does God do to deliver his people? He spreads the waters, doesn't he? And those Israelites cross the water, and then Pharaoh's army follows them. And then what happens to Pharaoh's army? God lets loose the waters, and they're swallowed up by the sea. And that's a great deliverance. Israel thought they were doomed even though they crossed the sea. Here comes Pharaoh's army and God has wiped out their enemies. And Moses, if you read it in Exodus there, Moses sings a song of deliverance. And it's recorded right there in Exodus. So these people here, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, but they also sing the song of the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? It's a symbol of Who? Jesus, isn't it? So they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and they sing the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. These people here, who's being described here? These are the people who are spoken of in chapter 14, the first five verses. This group is symbolized by the 144,000 that's described there in Revelation 7 and in Revelation 14. They've been saved out of the world, and they're now secure in the kingdom of God. They gained victory over the beast... And it was obtained by what? The blood of the Lamb. We read that in Revelation 12, verse 11. These people stood loyal to God even when the death penalty was pronounced. Because see, the beast comes out with a death penalty. Right? If you don't worship the beast, you're going to die. That's a death penalty. Revelation 13, verse 15. You read that. Now they stand safe on the sea of glass to be with God forever. The victory's complete, the struggle's over. Do you long for that day? I <laughs> tell you, I do. They overcame, they triumphed, and now in the heavenly kingdom, they sing the anthem of victory. They sing the song of Moses and the lamb. And this is a picture of God's people victorious. the church victorious. The time is coming, and it's coming very soon, beloved, when God's church, His people, his truth. Are going to be victorious in this conflict. We're right there. We're right there. We're on the threshold of it. Ellen White wrote something very interesting about the victory of the church. It's found in Spiritual Gifts, Volume One, pages 130, 131. In writing about the experience of John the Beloved while they, he was there, you know, on the Isle of Patmos, but you know, notice what she says. She says the angel from heaven came to John in majesty. His countenance beamed with the excellent glory of heaven. He revealed to John scenes of deep and thrilling interest concerning the church of God and brought before him the perilous conflicts that conflicts they were to endure. John saw them pass through fiery trials. It's not old peaches and cream, is it? They're going to pass through fiery trials and made white and tried and finally victorious overcomers gloriously saved in the kingdom of God. The countenance of the angel grew radiant with joy and was exceeding glorious as he showed to John, notice this, the final triumph of the church of God. John was enraptured as he beheld the final deliverance of the church. So this is a scene of final deliverance, the victory of the church. And what we need to know is, what church is this that is victorious? Well, we know that it is the true church that Jesus established, and it would not be overcome by the gates of hell, according to Matthew 16. Jesus said, The gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. Now, it seems that just about everybody at some time or other uh, claims to be the victorious church. The Roman Catholic Church claims, you know, uh, they claim this. They say, We are the church described in Matthew 16 because uh, Peter was the first pope and Jesus gave him the keys to the kingdom, and that's what they say. But many Protestant churches say something similar to this. They say we're the true church, we'll be victorious at last. In fact, every church organization out there, just by the fact that they're organized, are declaring that they are the true church, wouldn't you say? You know, the Seventh Day Adventist Church organization makes the same claim. Also says they're not those who are not associated with them, uh, but claim to be Seventh Day Adventists are mere offshoots. They're not really Seventh Day Adventists. And I've had to, that experience before. You know, some years ago, the former pastor over here, the, the conference church, called me, tell me that we had to stop using the name Seventh Day Adventist uh, because we weren't Seventh Day Adventists. and I told him well that's an expression of faith and uh, he said no we're not Seventh-day Adventists because we're not members of their organization and later on we received lawsuit threats from the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists um, telling us to uh, cease from using uh, the expression historic Seventh-day Adventists so we changed our name to Three Angels Sabbath Day Church no. it's an expression of faith and your name is to express your faith it's not per se the uh, it's the name of your organization but it's not per se the church the bible doesn't say that now it could express the church your organization can it could reflect the church but it's not necessarily the church my previous employer i remember getting a, a emphatic letter telling me to come back into the Seventh Adventist organization and, and that if I didn't I was lost and I was puzzled by that what if you're removed by that organization are you lost what if you're removed for believing in Jesus and standing up for his word are you lost these are questions that I had to find an answer to and I found the answer in the Bible But I'll tell you, because of such misunderstandings and and indoctrinations of who the church is, we've decided to study what the Word of God says and let it define who His people are. And I think it does a very good job, don't you? Who exactly is the church that will be victorious? Well, it's the people that match all the biblical characteristics that we found in our Bible study describing God's church. They'll go from the church militant to the church victorious. How does that happen? What causes the change? Well, there's going to come persecution. A final battle. And the foolish Laodicean tares as I describe them, those who do not love Jesus with their whole heart, those who were planted by the enemy, are removed from the wheat of God, who are those who do love Jesus with their whole heart. But there's that separation during the battle with the beast. And the last part of the third angel's message describes the church that is going to triumph as it describes what is the line of separation in the final battle between the church of Christ and the church of Antichrist. We've read it over and over and over. Revelation 14, 12, here's the patience of the saints. Here are they that what? They keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. The Bible says those are the people that are going to triumph. And we read about them in Revelation 15. Remember, Genesis 3.15 described a battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. God said that he would put enmity between the two. What's enmity mean? It's a hatred, isn't it? We see this enmity described not only in the first book of the Bible, but we also see it in the last book of the Bible. And we see it in the pages in between. Revelation twelve seventeen says, And the dragon was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God, and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's in the last book of the Bible. We found the same sentiments in the first book, in Genesis 3, 15. The remnant of her seed. We learned during our studies that the remnant will be distinguished by the manifestation of the gift of prophecy in their midst. And Revelation 19 says that the testimony of Jesus Christ is the witness of Jesus through the prophetic gift. So we have a people who not only believe the law of God and the prophets, but actually obey God's law and all that the prophets have spoken. And in so doing, they have progressed with the light of prophecy and they're giving the final call to prepare themselves and a people for the soon return of Jesus Christ. They make this call by voice. And not just by voice, but by their very life. Because they obey Jesus. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 455. The three angels' messages or let's say the three angels of Revelation 14, represent the people who accept the light of God's messages and go forth as his agents to sound the warning throughout the length and breadth of the earth. That's an interesting statement. The three angels of Revelation 14 represent the people who accept the light of God's messages and go forth as his agents. Let that sink in. So there's a final church, a remnant of God's people, according to Bible prophecy, that's going to be victorious, and it is this remnant people that will take the three angels' messages to the entire world. Those are the last messages of warning to the world before Jesus returns. Okay, So you have that group of people. All other people, all other churches, members of the organization of Antichrist, will fight against this final message of warning as they have all their messages of present truth throughout time, as Genesis 3.15 and Revelation 12.17 tells us. We just read them. So let me tell you, friends, a church organization that is fighting against these messages found in Revelation 14, verses 6-12, cannot be The victorious church cannot be the remnant church. This is common sense reasoning, friends. Jesus said in Mark 3, verse 24, And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. So these people who come out and they'll tell me, friends, when we talk about who what the church is, they'll say, well, there's apostasy in the church, but the church isn't an apostasy. Well, friends, just by your own declaration of that, that church cannot stand. That's what Jesus says. He says, if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but hath an end. people of God fight against sin, not against each other. Those who are members of the church of Antichrist fight against the people of God, for they condone sin, you see. They cherish it in their heart, and this is revealed in their actions. They claim to be God's remnant, but their true character is revealed as they fight against those who actually obey, see. And that's the line of demarcation. We'll get to that in just a moment. Signs of the Times. A sermon that uh, the prophet gave called Serve the Lord with Gladness. In holy vision, John saw the remnant church on the earth in an age of lawlessness, and he points them out in unmistakable language. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God, the faith of Jesus. They are in harmony with that law that rests in the ark in the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary. See, there's a demarcation And so, friends, the, the church victorious are those who take the three angels' messages to the entire world and who are in harmony with God's law. Now, we found that in the characteristics of the church that we've studied. What the Bible, how the Bible describes who and what the church is. We found that. They are commandment keepers, not commandment breakers. Now, the problem is there are many who profess to be in that group. We profess to be in that group, don't we? There are many who profess to be in that group. They profess to be the remnant, quote, church. They profess to be those who are taking the three angels' messages to the entire world, that present truth. But their character and actions betray their profession. By all outward appearances... Remember, the foolish virgins looked like the wise. The Laodiceans looked rich and increased with goods. The tares looked like the wheat. However, there is a distinction between those who profess to be members of the remnant church and those that not only make a profession, but also live out their faith as the remnant. And I want to look at a clear statement about this situation. And this is a most revealing statement. Review and Herald article entitled, Our Present Position, August 28, 1883. Our greatest trials will come from those who profess godliness. It was so with the world's Redeemer, it will be so with His followers. Those who have a love for the world are an enemy to God. Did you know that? That's what the Bible says. If you have a love for the world, you're an enmity with God. If you profess godliness, but love the world, do you love God? She says, our greatest trials will come from those who profess godliness. It was so with the world's Redeemer, it will be so with His followers. Jesus Himself said so. The world hated him, and if you follow him, it's going to hate you. Remember Genesis 3.15. God is going to put enmity between his people and Satan's people. She says, I should doubt whether I were a child of God, if the world, or even all professed Christians, spoke well of me. Now, you don't go out, you know, Your mission isn't to go out and make sure that everybody speaks bad of you. Right? (laughs) She's just saying, you know, I would doubt whether I was a child of God if everybody spoke well of me. Those who are in earnest to win the crown of eternal life need not be surprised or disheartened because at every step toward the heavenly Canaan, they meet with obstacles and encounter trials. The opposition which Christ received came from his own nation who would have been greatly blessed had they accepted him. In like manner, the remnant church receive opposition from those who profess to be their brethren. That is a revealing statement, friends. The remnant church receive opposition from those who profess to be their brethren. Who are they going to receive opposition from? The true people of God? Those that actually make up the remnant? From those who loudly say, We are the remnant? From those who profess to be their brethren? And that's where the opposition is going to come from. You know, it may be difficult to accept, but let us not be surprised by that. And that's exactly what's happening today. The opposition is coming from those that profess to be the remnant church. They say, we are the church that's going to be victorious. Yet they're fighting the church that is taking the three angels' messages to the entire world. They're fighting the remnant church while they're claiming to be the remnant church. Now, Ellen White said something in Signs of the Times, October 21st. Um, just, you know, She said a lot in there, but there's something that just popped out at me, and I mentioned it earlier. She said, God draws a line God draws a line. Where does God draw the line? Well, there's a group of people today who are professing to be the remnant church, the Church Victorious. We are the true church. We are the church described in Revelation 12, 17, Revelation fourteen twelve. That's what they say. So God draws a line. He draws a line right there in the middle of this great big group of people. And please notice something here. It is God that draws the line. Okay? Not us. Get that straight. God draws the line. Draw, we would draw terrible lines. That's why we're not to remove the tares. <laughs> See? God draws the line. But God draws the line and it's the angels that do the separating of the wheat and the tares. By the way, friends, uh, these angels are found in Revelation 14. And so, the message that God's people give is what's going to cause separation, the persecution and the message that's given. But where does God draw the line? He draws the line between those who merely profess to be His children, merely profess to be the remnant church, and those whose characters uh, show that they actually are His children, His remnant church. They don't just make a profession but they actually obey God from a heart of love uh, and give the last great warning to the world. These are the wheat of God that are gathered into His barn, you see. And so, beloved, I, this causes, I think, a person to think very seriously because every one of us is on one side of that line that God draws. or either on one side or the other. He says, here are the... The people that just make the profession, and here are the people who not only make the profession, but their actions, their lives, their characters so that they are actually living out what they profess. You see, the sheep and the goats. Remember Jesus talked about that? God draws a line between the sheep and the goats. And the sheep have no guile found in their mouth. you realize that the great majority of those that make the profession will turn out to be full of guile at the end and uh, they will not actually triumph? It's not enough to be a part of the professed church of God. Terrors are a part of the professed church of God. The question for us is whether our character and our life is in harmony with the biblical standard that God requires and we profess to keep. That's the question. God draws a line. What side of the line are you and I on? That's something we need to consider. When God draws that line, He marks His people forever. Ezekiel chapter 9 makes it very clear that God will place a mark on His people and they'll be sealed as His. Do you want God to make His mark on you or would you rather receive the mark of the beast? I want to be a member of God's church, don't you? You know, as I mentioned, the Roman Catholic Church professes that they are the true church. And they say to all Protestants, you're in heresy. You have willfully separated from the true church. You see, the Roman Catholic Church believes that their organization is the church. But you notice something out of the book, Great Controversy, page 51. Romanists have persisted in bringing against Protestants the charge of heresy and willful separation from the true church, but these accusations apply rather to themselves. They are the ones who laid down the banner of Christ. Notice this. They are the ones who did what? Laid down the banner of Christ and departed from the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. You read that in Jude 3. So, who is it that willfully separated from the true church? It was the papacy. Now, when they did it, and this is the devil's deception, when they did it, they were in the great majority. So you can't tell by total organizational membership whether it's the church of God or not. I mean, they kept the church organization. They had control of it. They kept the money. They kept the buildings. They kept almost all the pastors and yet they are the ones that willfully separated from the true church. Now how did they do that? Did they just decide one day? I get this from people sometimes. Did they just decide one day that they would no longer be a part of God's church? No. Did they find some hidden scripture that had been overlooked for centuries that stated the church has fallen now and now's the time to separate? You'd be amazed at some of the things that people bring up when we talk about this subject. Well, I can't leave my organization because the Bible doesn't say I'm to leave my organization now. Really. You need to know how they did it so you can tell when somebody does it again. Even if they have a majority of members in their organization, if they have the name the schools, hospitals, and buildings, etc. Because those things will not save you. God doesn't want you joining a country club. He wants you to be connected to Christ. But here's why they are the ones that separate from the true church. As she said, they are the ones who laid down the banner of Christ. Christ. What is the banner of Christ? We read it in Revelation 14, 12. The banner of Christ is the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Christ and all the apostles taught Christians to keep the commandments of God through the faith of Jesus. By the power you see that Jesus will give. That is what the apostolic church preached to the world. But the Romanists laid down that banner. They've taught that you cannot keep the commandments. And this teaching has gone all over the world and most Christians believe it today. You know, they say, do the best that you can. That's what's being taught. You do the best that you can, but you're, you know, you're going to have to go on in your sin. Because you're born that way. Cannot be changed. Then you have to go to confession and you have to get your sins forgiven, then you'll sin again. You have to go to confession, get your sin, you know, forgiven, and on and on and on. Gee, that's a powerful God, isn't it? I'll tell you that's not the God that I find in the Bible. That's not the God that parted the Red Sea. can't find that message in the Bible, friends. That is the gospel according to Antichrist. The Bible teaches that not only must I confess my sins to receive pardon, but I must also overcome sin through the power of God, which is available there right in the promise He's already given. We just have to believe it. That's what faith is. And then act upon it. You know? You can go out as a child and play in the traffic, but the odds are pretty great that you're going to get hit. But if the parent says, if you quit playing in the traffic, you'll be safe, you've got a decision to make, don't you? Are you going to have faith in your parent? Or not? And that's what the promises of God are. God says, if you quit doing this, and I'm, by the way, I'm going to give you the power and the desire to do my will. You just have to decide. That's what faith is. Overcoming sin. It's not a it's not the message of our time today that people love to hear. But that's the message. You see, that's why in the book of Revelation over and over again It is stated that the person that inherits eternal life will be the person that overcomes. You read Revelation 2, you read Revelation 3, the messages to the seven churches. In every case, it is the one that overcomes who inherits eternal life. It's very plain. Revelation 21, verse 5, And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful... And he said unto me, It is done, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life if they give me all their possessions. doesn't say that. I'll give it to you freely, it says. He that overcometh. It's no mistake that God says, I'm going to give you the water of life freely. You will be able to overcome. See? That's the context here. Whoever is athirst thirst of the fountain of water life freely, he that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. <clears throat> and that's the only way you can overcome. If he's your God and you're his son or child. It is he who overcomes that's going to inherit, inherit eternal life. Revelation Revelation 3.21 to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame. Even as I also overcame. Jesus is the example for us on how to overcome. When the devil came to tempt him in the wilderness, what did Jesus do? It is written. He used God's word to overcome the temptation. It's not enough to confess your sins, friends. Confession is important. If I've sinned, I'm to confess, but you cannot be saved just because you have confessed your sins. That's the gospel according to Antichrist. You just confess, but you don't change. The New Testament does not teach that you can be saved in sin. You can be saved from sin, but you cannot be saved in sin. There's no text in the New Testament that says you can be saved in sin. In fact, it says just the opposite. It says you cannot be saved unless you forsake your sins. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Remember, the angel said to Mary, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Doesn't say he will save his people in their sins, but from their sins. And that is, let me tell you something, that is very specific in the Greek language. The original language is very specific. You know, they had a highly developed grammatical system in the Greek language. Very similar to the English in that respect. And it doesn't say that, that we'll be saved in sin, it says he will save his people from sin. And the word from means what? This is rather interesting. The word from means out of. Doesn't it? From, out of. Jesus is going to take me out of my sinful life and give me power to overcome, to live a new kind of life. And the church that's going to be victorious is the people that will have overcome sin. In fact, let me share this with you. The word for church in the Greek is ekklesia, which means a calling out, or the called out ones. They have come out of sin through Christ and are members of His body His church. Meditate on that sometime. So Romanists separated from the church in two ways. First, they laid down the banner of Christ, which is the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus and the belief that you can overcome. That's what the faith of Jesus is about. We overcome by exercising the same faith that he had. Second, they departed from the faith once delivered to the saints. Well, what is the faith that was once delivered to the saints? Well, before Jesus left, he gave a charge to his apostles, didn't he? Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe All things whatsoever I have commanded you. Have you ever studied carefully through that text? What are we as disciples to teach? We're to teach them to observe all things whatsoever Jesus has commanded. Jesus is saying that human tradition and teaching is shut out of the church of God. That's what he's saying. I have no permission from God to teach you my opinion as His truth. Now, you know, if we're visiting, you know, outside of the sanctuary, let's say, I can tell you what I think about this or that. There's nothing wrong with that. But if I come to teach or to preach, I am forbidden by the Lord Himself to preach human teaching, human commandments, human philosophy, uh, any of that, that's shut out from the church. Jesus said, you're to teach whatsoever I commanded you. That is the faith that was once delivered to the saints. The apostles taught the church that what Jesus had taught them. And when you start to teach something that is different than what you have in the New Testament, what uh, would you call it, I guess? That's departing from the faith that was once delivered to the saints. So the Roman church laid down the banner of Christ and they departed from the faith that was once delivered to the saints. They had once been the called out ones, but decided to go back. Remember, spiritual Babylon was once pure, but has become corrupt. Now they deny that they did this, of course. They profess to be God's church, but God draws a line, remember, and they are on the wrong side of that line. They war against those that are on God's side of the line. And friends, I can't emphasize this enough because there's such a misunderstanding about this and people are deceived by this. We've got to understand that the true church does not make war against those who are keeping the commandments of God. I mean, doesn't that make sense? In Revelation 12, 17, it says that it is the devil or the dragon that makes war against those that keep the commandments. The true church does not make war against those who are keeping the commandments. I hear people say, other people, denominations, we are the church that will triumph. The Lord's going to straighten everything out, especially Adventists say this, conference Adventists. He's going to sweep out all the terrors. We're We're going to triumph. fact I read an article last night I just shook my head twisting things out of context and such it basically said the same thing and I'll tell you the very people that are saying things like that are making war against the people because the church is the people isn't it which are trying to keep the commandments does the true church do that? it doesn't signs of the times article preparation for the testing time April 22nd, 1889. The wrath of the dragon will be directed against the loyal servants of heaven. We've read that in Scripture, haven't we? Says the prophet, the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. We can see from this Scripture that it is not the true church of God that makes war with those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. I don't know, you know, some people just don't have common sense, I guess. But this is not only in the Bible, it's from an inspired prophet of God. Making the connection. The true church does not make war against those that keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Again, what is the testimony of Jesus Christ? Revelation 19.10 The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Loma Linda Messages, page 33. The remnant church will acknowledge God in His law and will have the prophetic gift. Obedience to the law of God and the spirit of prophecy has always distinguished the true people of God. That's an interesting statement. So those who deny and dismiss the gift of of prophecy given to the remnant church and friends, that will include the inspired writings of the messenger of God, Ellen White, are not members of the church that would be victorious. I mean, how can you be victorious if you deny a holy and spirit prophet of God? And there are people that do that. There are people that say, have you ever run into this? People will say, well, the Old Testament was for the Jews. We just study the New Testament. You know you just did away with 66 inspired books by prophets of God? They're not 66. Sorry. That's the whole Bible. But the the Old Testament, I was thinking Isaiah, 66 chapters. It's amazing to me. So who are the people that will not triumph? The people that will not triumph are the tares. The sinners... You know, occupy, occupy a place in Zion and the people who make a profession that they are the remnant church while well, they are actually the children of the devil now that's some hard language but friends the Bible lays that out notice this, Review and Herald it's an article, self-exaltation who is the first person, the first creature to exhibit self-exaltation be Lucifer, wouldn't it? It became Satan. Notice this. While professing to be children of God, they are to all intents and purposes children of the wicked one, for they act out his spirit and do his will. That's how you tell. It is mutual strife in the place of mutual love that if persisted in will prove their common ruin. Professed Christian churches are often ruined by their own unchristian course toward one another. Jesus said in John 15, 1335, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. What? If you're striving against one another? No, if you have love one to another, the love that I have towards you. See, he was specific about what kind of love. So it's not enough to make a profession. If we profess to be the children of God while we are, as she says, to all intents and purposes, the children of the devil, we're not going to be victorious. And there comes a time when separation from apostasy becomes an absolute duty. I mean, you try, I get people that say, well, we want to stay in there. We're going to stay in because there are people who don't know this and we want to reach them. Well, follow that logic out. God calls you out of Babylon. Why would I come out of Babylon? I can just stay in there and try to reach those people that are in there. But God says, come out of her, my people. Do you know more than God? And then there are some people who think you need to stay with fallen church, that organization, no matter what happens in it. And while people are staying in that church, they lose their souls, and they may lose the souls of their children. That happened in the Roman church. Millions and millions of people said, we're going to stay here, even though it's in apostasy. We're going to stay here and let the Lord take out all the tares. But as they stayed, they ended up losing their own souls. Millions of people. Notice this. Signs of the Times article, the seal of God. Paul writes to the Romans, If it be possible, as much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men. But there is a point beyond which it is impossible to maintain union and harmony without the sacrifice of principle. Separation then becomes an absolute duty. Friends, if you're compromising moral principle, if you're going against your conscience to stay with any group or any church, then you have an absolute duty to separate from that group. So the people that will triumph will not be the people that stay and compromise principle when there is an absolute duty to separate from apostasy. And those that say, I'm part of the church, I'm part of the remnant church, but are living in sin, they're not going to try them. They're not going through. It's not enough to say, I'm part of the church and still in sin. It's not enough to have your name on the membership books. What is the most important book to have your name recorded in? Who can tell me? Jesus' book of life. Signs of the Times, article. Whom are we serving? The Lord hath a controversy with His people, and although in His great mercy He bear long with them, yet if they persist in living in transgression of His law, they will not stand in the day of His rebuke. In other words, they're not going to be a part of the church that's victorious. She says, he has seen the backsliding and iniquity of his professed people. He has noticed the unbelief, the hypocrisy, the pride, the selfishness, the disobedience to his law, and he will punish for these things. God cannot be in harmony with the people who will not obey his commandments, who are wickedly departing from his precepts, and by their example of disobedience at leading their children and their neighbor in the way of transgression. The professed church of Christ is strengthening the hand of sinners in their evil work by making void through their traditions the commandment of Jehovah. So eventually, friends, you see, these people, these people who profess, they're not going to be part of the church anymore. There's going to be a separation. They're not going to triumph with the church. Do you know what's going to happen to them? They're going to be gathered as the tares. They're going to be left in the field to be burned. Let's not be a part of those people. Signs of the Times article, Christian Privileges and Duties. The professed church of Christ has wandered from her privilege, her duty, and her God. Like ancient Israel, she has forsaken the covenant and joined herself in harmony with the world. Pride, luxury, and pleasure are invited into the sanctuary and her holy places are defiled. Those who have pledged their allegiance to God enjoy the company and spirit of His avowed enemies. Their choice determines their character. See, that's the danger of it. God wants to bring our character back up to how it was first created in Adam. The character of Christ. If you stay in an institution, an organization that imbibes error, that teaches error, that loves the world and, and all that comes with it, it damages your character. You won't be fit for heaven. You won't be fit to be a citizen of heaven. And those that are in harmony with apostate powers prove that they are at enmity with God. God if you're in harmony with those who break the law of God, if you give your hospitals to them, this is what the conference has done, that happened in Denver, if you send representatives and make agreements with them in regard to the Eucharist, which they've done, if you agree that you will not publish and send out certain things and you oppose the worldwide distributions of books like The Great Controversy, which the prophet says needs to be spread like the leaves of autumn, then my friend, you're at enmity with God. Let me tell you, the church that is victorious will not be a professed church that is living in sin, that is joined to the world, and joined ultimately to the papacy, which is the Antichrist church. We've got to get that straight in our minds. Such an organization is not going through to victory. But who's going to be victorious? Our scripture reading today was Revelation 7. It's found in Revelation 7, and I'll close with this scripture. Verse 13, And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest, And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, friends. That's what it says. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them into living fountains of waters and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Beloved, you can be there because Jesus paid the ultimate price for you. He paid the ultimate price so that you could have victory now. That you can have victory each day. That you'll have victory forever. God's people will be victorious. And if you accept the gift today that Jesus gives, freely He says He gives, then you'll be victorious and be a member of that church when He returns. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we thank You so very, very much for Jesus. We thank You for Your Holy Word. We thank You that Victory is within our grasp. And all we have to do to have victory is to have Jesus in our heart, to have Jesus in our mind. So Lord, we pray that you forgive us of our many sins. And we ask that, that Jesus will abide in us and change us. As You stated in Genesis 3.15, You will put enmity. Lord, we pray that You put enmity in our heart for sin. That our desires will be Your desires. And that we will stand for truth and righteousness. I pray, Lord, that You will give those courage to do just that. They may be in churches now that they recognize are not Your church. I pray that You give them courage to stand for the truth, even though others don't. And Lord, please continue to be with us throughout this Holy Sabbath day. May we have the love of Jesus always reigning in our hearts. I pray in His blessed name.